Welcome to Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners, the podcast for dentists who are ready to take their practice to new heights. Join your host, Stan Kinder, who has worked with the profession over four decades and now represents practice owners interested in exploring a relationship with a DSO. On the show, he explores ways to grow your income and increase the value of your practice. Expect thoughtful conversations with influential guests who are pioneers in the dental industry. From insightful dental consultants to brilliant marketing experts, from accomplished dental practice owners to innovative dental manufacturers, this podcast will bring you a diverse range of perspectives. Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners is here to equip you with the tools and information you need to thrive. Your practice's future begins right here. And now, here's your host, Stan Kinder. Um, and I, um, so I bought them out of the U.S. Uh, market in 1990, flipped to Tamasco in 94. So that's my business career. Then from there, I did some private equity work, and then I started my investment advisory firm. Well, the private equity uh, work is very relevant to what I do because uh, the vast majority of DSO buyers are uh, private equity uh, backed. So a lot of institutional money uh, um, sloshing around the space these days. Tell me a little bit about, um, I guess, both the sale of your business and any sort of significant lessons learned, and if maybe you can tie that in or relate that to a dental practice owner who's potentially thinking about selling his business. Um, well, it depends. It, well, no, I guess it doesn't depend. So the issue when they sell a practice, they're obviously going from you know, the accumulation stage, and now they want their money to make to earn income for them. So they have to make sure that their portfolio is geared towards income, right? Um, that's re- really important. You know, it's easy to say, just put your money in the stock market. It always grows over 10, 12 years. But if you need to make money every single year, that's not going to help you. Sure. So that's the most important thing. They have to make sure before they sell that they know what they're going to do with the proceeds to dupe their income. Now, I, I know a lot of your guys probably stay on and they have earnouts, and it might not be, you know, right up, right, right today where it's important, but eventually it'll be important. Absolutely. Um, yeah, they're, they're, um, clearly, um, dentists who are selling to DSOs are selling at values that pretty significantly exceed what traditional values have been. That, that consideration typically gets paid in some combination of cash and rollover equity, occasionally notes. And so it's clearly important that they understand how to handle those, uh, those assets as they, uh, as they go forward. Tell me a little bit about what led you to found American Asset and sort of move into the investment uh, advisory uh, uh, world. Uh, so what happened was when I sold my business, most of the people I met in the financial world, all they wanted me to do was put my money in the stock market. I was young, I was naive, but I did know that I one of the reasons I sold was to eliminate the risk. Why am I going to go from one risk to another? So I really set the firm up because nobody really would invest the way that I wanted to. And then and I really set the, the firm up really just to manage my own money. Uh, what changed is once I started getting clients and I realized it could be a business, it checked all the boxes, right? Because I sold to Home Depot and Lowe's. So basically, I had two customers. So they said jump, I said how high. Um, now I have a business with lots of customers. And if one person leaves, it doesn't change my life. So yeah. I, wanted, I wanted to go from being controlled to having a real business. And the other thing is, um, we know when you're making plumbing supplies, you're not helping the world very much. When you help someone manage their money, you are helping them. So if you do your job right. Sure. Elaborate a little bit further in terms of, you know, you weren't able to find people that were willing to um, advise you to invest in the way that you wanted to. Talk to me a little bit about 
the way that you wanted to versus how most traditional advisors were uh, suggesting you proceed? Well, like I said, all they want to do is put you either in the stock market or 60-40, but they don't understand that when you're selling and you're new to this game, you want guaranteed income. You want to know how much money am I going to have every month to live on, right? Especially if you're a dentist, you're making a decent living, you don't want to go backwards. Right. And you know, if you believe the industry data, it suggests that fewer than uh, 10% of dentists are able to retire comfortably when they reach retirement age. So clearly there's been uh, something missing in the equation for an awful lot of practitioners. Well, the problem that we find, and not to be rude with doctors especially, is they are so intellectually smart that they think that that makes them smart in every other aspect of life. Unfortunately, brains is not what works in finance. It really isn't, right? It's an emotional game. It's not an intellectual game. If it was an intellectual game, everybody would be Warren Buffett. So I think that, unfortunately, doctors, you know, we, we call them uh, the, anything with the words LP and letters LP attached, they love. <laughs> it's just very, they, they, and again, I'm not being disrespectful. They are smart, but again, brains doesn't work on Wall Street. Sure. Tell me uh, uh, a little bit about what's the your ideal client profile. Uh, my ideal client is, I don't really care about the assets. I more care about that they understand that get that. Um, investing is not legalized gambling. We're not out to find the next, you know, hot uh, Microsoft or, you know, Tesla. That's not what we do. That's legalized gambling. Well, the, uh, the client for me is someone, especially someone who sold a practice that realizes, okay, I have a chunk of money now. This is my, this is my one shot. We cannot blow this. So let's make sure we invest this wisely and make a nice return so that I can live comfortably, not look over your shoulder and worrying about what the rest of the world is making. Just make sure that you're making enough to make yourself happy. Sure. And I don't know if this is a really a relevant question, but do you have kind of a target return that you you generally yes. do? do yeah, we, we like to target an 8% return because, you know, an 8%, especially if it's long-term cap gains, is going to be 5 or 6%. Um, and if you do that, you can keep the volatility really, really low. And I think, you know, I, on an after-tax return like that, you should be able to live a comfortable life and never hit into your principal. So right. think you're going to make 10 or 12%, that's you might, but you're going to take a lot of risk, and you're going to have even if they're temporary, you're going to have a lot of drawdowns. Yep. If you're aiming for ten to twelve percent, you better hold on for thirty or thirty-five percent, you know, down, down drawdowns. Yeah, no question about it. And you know, obviously, everybody has seen over the the last uh, several years tremendous volatility in the uh, the stock markets, bond markets. Hundred percent. Look, people were spoiled, right? I mean, they 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 just really were spoiled. Because it was so easy to make money, and then all of a sudden, you no know, laughter came, and it just blew everybody out of the water. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's it's great when you're making the money until you're not. <laughs> right. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, you've obviously been at this for a fairly extended period of time. What kind of changes have you seen over the course of your 20 year career? in investment advisory? I would have said until last year, people forgot what a bear market is all about. But I think last year was very healthy. People realized what a bear market is. So I don't think very much has changed. You know, in bull markets, you have greed and you have people looking over their shoulder, wondering why they're not making as much as their friend who's bragging about it. Then you have a year like last year where their friends aren't bragging anymore and everybody's running for cover. You know, what was interesting last year, people would say, this bear market, it's worse than ever before. 
were you not around in 2008? Oh no, this is different. And I hear that every time, right? Whenever there's a bear market, it's worse than ever before. You and I have been around long enough to know I wasn't here for 29, but I would think that was the worst. And I would think, oh, wait, was probably right up there as the second worst. Last year was just nothing. It was just noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it's obviously uh, the markets uh, roared back here over the course right. of the last six months. But uh, you have to you you have to believe that it's uh, uh, music's going to stop at some point. Well, you know what it is? I think you in different. A, a better statement would be you have to have a portfolio that is designed to weather any storm. Last year was not the time to make changes. You make changes when you catch up and then you say, okay, I don't, I don't want to live through 2022. What do I have to do differently? But you don't bail in the, in the midst of a storm. You're either storm out, get better, and then make changes. So, you know, um, and if, if you have to sit here and, and if your investments are going to be predicated on how the market does, you're never going to make it because no one knows how the market's going to do. I mean, just pick on Facebook. What Facebook went for, I think, what, $300, $400. And I remember it was Bill Ackman who took a loss at 200 for five, 600 million. Then it went to 180. Then it went to 90. And lo and behold, today it's back at 300. I mean, I know Ackman took a $500 million loss for no reason. Yeah, it's crazy. And you're going to laugh. I have a client who's not a professional. When Facebook hit 90, she bought a thousand shares. Today it's at 320. See, I was one of the hedge fund guys. Yeah, feeling feeling pretty good. Might be time to harvest some of those gains. Well, you know, this is a woman. It's interesting. She, I'm not telling you her name. She took a million dollars, wrote it to two six, wrote it back down to a million dollars, and I consoled her by saying, "Look, it wasn't brains that got you to two six, or stupidity got you back to one. It's a bull market and a bear market. That's all it is. But people kind of confuse markets with brains and stupidity. It's not. It's not your fault, and it's not. You didn't get there because you were smart. You just rode the wave." Sure. In your typical portfolio where you're trying to achieve that 8% uh, uh, return, tell me a little bit about, you know, roughly what the mix of assets that uh, that you're investing in to achieve that return. So our main portfolio is uh, based on the work of Harry Brown called the Permanent Portfolio, where we hold four um, non-correlated assets. We have the stock market, which we use in index, 30-year treasuries, gold, and cash. With the concept being that if you look deeply, m- almost every asset class returns about 8 to 9% historically. The problem is they don't do it all at the same time. A great example would be 2008. The market lost 35%, long-term treasuries gained 35%, gold was up 8% because they're non-correlated. In March of COVID, the market lost it north of 30%, the treasuries gained north of 30%, and gold was up, you made money again. And the reason for that is when the market has a dramatic loss, the Fed steps in and lowers interest rates, which mathematically causes long-term treasury to go up. But the good news is, so you might say, well, they were just breaking even. Well, yeah, you're breaking even in, in the worst of all times. But generally, all asset classes go up, so you just make money. You just smooth it out. Um, the example being, if you own gold and I own treasuries and someone else owned the market for the last 30 years, we averaged about the same at the end of the day, but we each lost 30% multiple times. By doing this, you're just eliminating those huge drawdowns, which makes you sleep at night and not make knee-jerk reactions. Sure. Makes a mess a lot of sense. That's the major part. And the other part of our portfolio that we do, we do a lot of structured notes now where you can earn north of 10% interest relatively uh, risk-free. Um, so we do a portion for that. And there's actually, because of all the volatility, you can even um, earn about 7% income in some fairly conservative one-year um, trades. So you're not locked up for a long time. Got it. What kind of advice would you, and I, I guess, you know, some of this is 
as uh, to some degree age related and kind of where they are in their professional uh, journey. But the young dentist who's recently in the independent practice, I'm sure has there's one set of advice for that person versus somebody who's mid-career making a pretty healthy living. And then, you know, the late stage person who's looking to exit and get liquidity on their practice asset. Well, I mean, saying the different different kind of advice you'd give those people? Yeah. Well, look, for someone who's starting out, I mean, I assume by the time they get into dental school, they're probably already 30. So, you know, at that point, they're looking to save money for a house. They're looking to save for college for their children. You know, they're in the saving mode, right? So, and it's going to depend on their lifestyle, how much they can save. If you're saving for a home, obviously you can't get aggressive because you don't know when you'll need the money. But once you get past that, you know, just really, if you're young, the stock market is a great investment so long as you recognize if you're 30 and you're investing in the stock market, you want it to go down every year, not go up. So you're buying at lower prices. You and I, we don't have that much time. We don't buy into that. But seriously, if you're 30, why do you want the market to go up every year? You're just paying higher prices. You want it yep. to go down every year. You want it to be at the high when you sell, not when you buy. Counterintuitive, but it makes sense. If you're 35, last year was a godsend. You're putting money into your 401k at lower prices every day. You bought Facebook at 90. Now it's at 320. You bought a line technologies at 150. Now it's 400. You did that by accident, right? You didn't do it on purpose. So that's what a younger person has to do. And also for the young people that don't understand that mortgage rates are not always zero, like today they're 7%, which doesn't shock you and I, if you have a 7 or 8% mortgage, pay down your mortgage. It's a guaranteed 7, 8% return. There's no tax advantage to having a mortgage. So people need to understand that if you have a 7, 8% mortgage, pay your mortgage down. That's the best thing you can do. You know, as you get closer to retirement, you still need to be somewhat aggressive. You don't need to tone it down. So, you, you know, so you have that cash out moment. Now you have a lump sum. Now you have more than you've ever had. You can't afford to lose it. That's when you want to get conservative and look at more types of income plays. Sure. Is the bulk of the assets that you manage in, you know, tax sheltered retirement programs or no, most of our money, most of our clients have accumulated their wealth from working. So they're not really in the 401k or, you know, they have money there. But obviously, when, especially when you have a, a liquidity event, obviously that's not going to be in your IRA. And, you know, IRAs and 401ks, I, I always try to warn people, just remember when you have it, once you take money out, you're going to be paying tax on that. So if you have a million dollars, it's not a million dollars. At best, it's seven fifty. And right. just keep that in mind. You know, it's it's you're gonna pay tax when you take it out. Yeah. And I, I, don't get me wrong. I believe in them because anytime you can defer paying go- taxes to the government, that's a good thing. But just recognize it's not as big a pot as you think it is when you see it. Yeah, I, I'm sort of confronting that as we speak. I'm I'm actually uh, 71, retired from employment, but obviously uh, working in my own business. And my wife is a school teacher, uh, still continuing to work. And we're sort of working through all of the math on what to do with the assets that we have and in a way that's going to work best, particularly for her, because she's 10 years younger than I am. Got it. You've talked a little bit about the uh, the core principles of how you um, advise your, your clients really in terms of uh, um, creating a balanced portfolio with assets that tend to and not be connected and and move in parallel with each e- each other. Talk a little bit more about that, if you will, because I think that's a pretty compelling argument. Well, the, the whole premise of how this portfolio started is Harry Brown said, okay, there's really only four things you can do with your money that's liquid, cash, stocks, bonds, or commodities. 
anything else you think of as an investment is either illiquid or in that basic, you know, one of those four asset classes. And again, he said, if you have all four asset classes, you never have to worry about timing the market. Because if you get it wrong, and like last year and interest rates are going up, yes, you're going to lose money on bonds, um, but gold was going up. So you're, you know, you were starting to earn money on your cash. You went from earning zero to earning five. So you don't have to think about it. And then the key is to rebalance. Every year, rebalance yourself back to 25% in each. So basically, what are you doing? You're always selling high and always buying low because you're selling your winners and buying your losers. Yeah. And that's, and that's a very hard thing to do, right? But it's a smart thing to do. Sure. Uh, you got, and when we, when we buy the assets, like for, when we talk about the stock market, we, we just buy the S&P 500. We, you don't have to, no one gets it right. No one beats the market. So you might as well just buy the S&P. You get all 500 stocks. And the S&P is a self-fulfilling prophecy because as a company gets into trouble, it automatically drops out of the S&P 500 and is replaced by a better quality company. For, for interest rate exposure, which are bonds, we use the 30-year treasury just because it has no, it has no credit risk, just interest rate risk, which is what we want. Commodities, we use gold just because gold is truly the only financial commodity. Silver is 80% industrial, whereas gold is 90% financial. People don't realize next to the US dollar, gold is the world's number two currency. Um, it is, it's a very vital part of the financial um, fabric that we work with. Um, and then of course, cash. And people, I understand over the last five years when you're earning zero, cash is not kid. But today to get 5% on your money, there's nothing wrong with having cash around. You never know when you're going to need it. And also, you know, the time, if you were in cash, last year was a great time. Just I tell everyone, if you're, you should always have buy points. You know, if the market loses 15%, I'm going to buy some or 20. But take advantage of those drops. Don't just watch them pass you by because they just correct themselves and you just missed a great opportunity. Today, it's too late, right? Yes, right. you went from 36 to 45. I mean, that's what a 20, 30% up, up you could have had. I'm not saying put all your money there, but should always have what we call some dry powder to take advantage of the of an opportunity. Sure. It talked to me a little bit about how your how you get paid, how are your uh, your fees structured? Right, so our industry is unique. Uh, other than myself, uh, the brokerage firms no longer make any money. Nobody charges commissions. Um, so I charge a fee of 1% a year, which I bill a quarter of a percent per quarter in arrears. So first I work, then I get paid. So that's how I get compensated. But there's no fees on the brokerage level. We happen to keep all our client accounts at Charles Schwab. But whether it's Schwab, Fidelity, Morgan, nobody charges anymore. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's tough to compete with all of the uh, sort of no no fee uh, uh, traders out there. Well, I mean, look, the way Schwab is is the reason we, we don't have fees, but they are making money, right? They, they are making money when you trade. They are skimming a penny here or there on every trade. It really shouldn't matter to the average person because a penny a share is not going to change your life. But that's how the brokers make money. They also made a lot of money or they're making a lot of money now with their cash sitting or they're paying you zero and they're loaning it out at seven or eight percent. So that's helping them for sure. Right. Talk to me. Uh, um, it would have been uh, some of the most difficult things you've confronted over your your 20 years with American Asset Management. Look, the things in our industry, which I wish I knew then that I know now, is you tend to panic when things go bad. I lived through the 2000 you know, internet bubble. I lived through the 2008. I lived through COVID. I lived through last year. You learn that those, no matter how bad they are, we always recover. In 29, you know, the great crash, there was no Federal Reserve. And it, and it really only took 16 years. I know that's a long time, but it took 16 years to catch up. Okay, but we caught up. And that was without a Federal Reserve. Um, in the 08 and 09 crash, it took four or five years. Crashes happen. And they're painful, but the, you just got to ride them out. That's part of investing. You can't panic. Um, the stock market is not going to zero. Individual stocks might go to zero, but the market's not going to zero. Yeah. 
What if you had a singular piece of advice to give uh, uh, to a dentist? For what would it be? Look again, it all depends where they are in the career. But I guess I would I would go back to just saying if you want to be financially independent, I'm trying to give, I'm trying to think about that. Look. Dentists make a lot of money. They're entitled to live any lifestyle they want. The problem that many people, they don't plan for retirement because they're afraid of what that answer is going to be. But in a dentist's case, if they have, you know, a liquidity event at the end, then they should enjoy their lives, you know, not, not make silly investments and, you know, just be prudent about it. You know, find a good advisor, come up with a plan that works for you and stick with it. But don't look over your shoulder at how well your friends are doing because they only tell you about their winnings. They never tell you about their losings. Yeah. Uh, you know, five five to seven years ago, the vast majority of dentists who transacted with the DSO were late career guys who are really looking to put in place a predictable exit slash transition strategy. Um, but over time, it's sort of gradually moved younger and you're seeing more mid-career uh, dentists uh, transacting largely with, I think, because they feel like they've hit a plateau and really like the idea of having a, uh, a partner with capital to help them grow to the next level. I had one very successful dentist that I spoke with who did uh, uh, a fairly healthy uh, uh, transaction. He, he got close to $9 million. And he said for him, and this was a guy that was in his uh, early 40s, he said, uh, you know, I've got 100% of my assets tied up in my practice. It's not at all liquid. And I'm really interested in kind of uh, diversifying and limiting my risk. And so being able to take the equity out, um, invest those proceeds was very attractive to them. Um, makes sense. And that's, that's why I sold my first business. I used to say when I, I was 32 and I said, I won the, I, I knew how much I could get from my business. And I said, I won the, the game, won nothing in the bottom of the ninth. I don't need to hang around for extra innings. And I was able to offload that risk to somebody else. But that was why I didn't want to jump from there into the stock market because then I'm jumping from one risk that I understand to a risk that I don't understand. So yeah, to that, to that Dennis, I would just say just make sure that what you're going to invest these hard-earned proceeds in that they're going to they're not going to disappear. Yeah, got it. Everything that you say uh, makes uh, makes an awful lot of sense to me. It, I, as a uh, um, and I guess this is a little bit of a repeat question, but you've been both an entrepreneur now uh, um, a financial advisor. You know, is there any particular uh, insights that that you would uh, offer as a consequence of all those experiences? Honestly, how would I what would I advise people? I mean, you know, it's a tough question. I, I I guess I can only answer it from a financial standpoint. I probably am repeating myself just to recognize that enjoy your life. Don't get fixated by money. If you have an investment that's keeping you up at night, get rid of it because it's not worth it, right? Investments should not rule your life. It should be a part of your life, but it shouldn't rule your life. But by the same token, do not ignore it, right? Especially if you're making money and you're saving, you know, you know get a good advisor and, and pay attention, develop a plan. And don't be afraid of what what the answer is going to be because you'd be surprised that you'll, if you set the goal early enough, you'll attain it. You will. You'll make enough, yet you'll inherit some, some security, some investments. You'll get there, but it's easier. If I always, I was saying, saying, if you don't know where you want to go, you'll never know how to get there. So right. if you, you want to retire, why don't you find out early on what it's going to take to get there? And another thing probably what I would say now is too many people are fixated with retiring. If you go back 20 years ago, if you were 70, oh my God, you weren't working because you barely could walk. We're in much better physical shape right now. Thinking you're going to retire at 60 is silly. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? I mean, Social Security was designed that you retired at 65 and you dropped it at 70, with all due respect, right? 
Now we're living to be 85, 90. Well, think about it. If you retire at 65, that means you worked for two thirds of your life and you're living on your money for one third. That's a pretty hefty lift. Right. Uh, and I tell people, if you really, unless you hate what you're doing, just work, especially a dentist, work less. Don't work 60 hours, work 40, work 30, work 20, or sell and be part of the practice. And I'm sure some of your buyers have salespeople, they'd like to call them business development people on the road to help them increase the practice. You know, that's, that's another way. But I guess now that I'm thinking about my biggest advice, should be don't get fixated on retirement. Get fixated on enjoying your life. And as you get older, figure out ways to continue to enjoy it, but you don't have to go, you know, cold turkey. For sure. Is there a a threshold level uh investable cash or assets that a client needs to bring uh, to the table for you to take them on? No, we'll take anybody if they're really if they're if it's important enough to them to come talk to us and meet with us. Eventually, they'll, they'll, everyone gets to the same point. We'll have more money, so we're happy to start with whatever they want to start with. Okay. Any any questions I can uh, answer for you? Uh, no, I'm just curious because I brought it up. Do your your buyers do they have business development people out there helping to grow the practices they're buying? Yeah, yeah, they they clearly because that that dollar cost averages down. You know the cost of their initial acquisition. So to the degree that they they can generate, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, I'll call it same store growth. That overall makes uh, uh, for a better financial return for them. And and the uh, uh, the private equity guys, they're clearly in the game as a consequence of the arbitrage opportunity. So they're acquiring practices typically uh, somewhere between four and a half times to six and a half times, uh, maybe seven times EBITDA. And then when they recapitalize, they're getting anywhere from from uh, 12 to 15 times. Right. Sure. Uh, and it's it's been uh, a sector that's generated uh, very consistent and favorable returns for the institutional investors. And so, you know, most private equity funds, if they don't have a, a, a dental investment in their portfolio, they're looking for one. Now, which PE firms are the largest in the space? Probably BlackRock is out there. Oh, well, there's a lot of what I would call the small and medium-sized business-focused uh, firms. Uh, the the company that I was with, I had some uh, uh, an equity investment in the firm, and they recently recapitalized in December of uh, 22. And uh, the new investor was a sovereign wealth fund from Abu Dhabi. Oh, wow. With $250 billion of assets under management. That's big time. Okay. Yeah. Kind of, kind of crazy. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really kind of all over the map. A lot of healthcare services focused firms were early entrants into the space because they felt like they kind of knew the sector, knew how to, how to both acquire and grow the, the, uh, the businesses under management as well as, um, drive growth in the individual practices. So it, it's been a, it's been an interesting time because, it, you know, 10 years ago, if a dentist wanted to sell a practice, this, he could only sell it to another dentist. And the dental buyer had a kind of an artificial ceiling put on the price he was able to pay because they were relying on bank financing uh, to fund the purchase. And banks would limit what they were willing to lend as a percentage of uh, top line revenue. Whereas the, uh, the PE funded uh, buyers 
they're doing it as a multiple of EBITDA and they're, they're uh, you know, approaching it just like they would approach the purchase of a manufacturing or a distribution business or any other kind of business that uh, would potentially be in their portfolio. And, uh, you know, historically, traditional uh, Dell buyers had paid somewhere in the range of 60 to 80% of top line revenue. And I've been uh, involved in transactions where easily uh, uh, prices are 250 to 300% of, uh, of top line revenue. And, you know, with an equity uh, uh, component that has uh, additional upside. Yeah, columns are very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So the you know, the DSOs have been pretty disruptive in this space, and the the trade the trade press today says roughly 23 percent of practices are affiliated with a, uh, a DSO consolidator, and and when you look at the the MD side of the world, seventy uh, percent of MDs either work for uh, private equity funded consolidators or hospital uh, systems. Only 30% are in independent private practice today. And so that suggests that there's a tremendous amount of runway for continued growth on the, on the dental side of the universe. Understood. Do you, do you have a lot of dentists as clients currently? I have a few. I don't have I don't have a lot. Okay. In fact, one of my dentists did sell to a roll-up. Gotcha. Yeah, that, there it's uh, it's an interesting time and you're uh, you're seeing folks get some fairly sizable transactions. I, I had a uh, dentist who had a very large single-side practice uh, recently, you uh, sold for twenty-seven and a half million dollars. Oh my goodness, that's a big number. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, pretty crazy. Well, hey, Julian, I thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. It's been uh, very informative. I really appreciate it. I use a third-party firm to sort of manage the podcast process. There, in fact, I think the folks who contacted you initially, and so they'll make a uh, a, a copy of the recording available to you Perfect. in the near term. And uh, certainly, if I come across folks who I think could benefit from your services, I'll be more than happy to send them your way. We love that. I appreciate that very much. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. All right. Nice to meet you. Glad to meet you. Well, have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners. We hope you gain valuable insights and practical wisdom that will guide you on your journey to success with your practice. To visit Stan Kinder on the web, go to www.everythingdso.com. If you found today's episode helpful, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an opportunity to hear brilliant insights from dental industry insiders. Remember, whether you're planning your next strategic move, seeking ways to enhance your practice's value or dreaming of expanding your dental empire, we're here to guide you on your way to success.